My name is Adam Bultel. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not normally in this slot on a Sunday morning. Normally I'm with either our middle school, high school, or college students, but was asked to open a psalm as part of our study through the psalms. And so uh, we're going to pursue that together this morning. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 46. Psalm 46 will be our text this morning. You can open your Bibles there. Psalm 46 is, is one of my favorite psalms. When we initially discussed in staff meeting uh, the possibility of walking through the psalms, I immediately called dibs on this psalm from the get-go. Now, I'm preaching this psalm with the awareness that Dale Johnson preached the first few verses of this text about three months ago. I want to open this text again uh, for just a few reasons. First, this psalm is a timely reminder in our present circumstances. The psalm speaks to fear in the face of adverse circumstances. And there are certainly things happening in our world that the theology of this song speaks to. Alan Ross writes this, a commentator on the psalms, writes this. Although this psalm was written ages ago for a different group of believers with different problems, its message, more than most, remains timeless and easily applied in any generation. Dale Johnson so helpfully dove into the first few verses of this psalm, and I want us to continue to pull some of the, the meat off of the bones of this text together. This is in no way a corrective to what he spoke on, but simply seeking to gather more from the text that he initiated a few months ago. The central message of Psalm 46 is not hard to identify. It is repeated throughout the psalm in verses 1, verse 7, and verse 11. Let's read through the psalm together and, and give special attention to those verses. Verse 1, verse 7, and verse 11 to gather the central message of this psalm. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Seba. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease. To the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. As I said before, the central message of, of Psalm 46 is, is not hard to identify. There are uh, summative statements at the beginning and end of this psalm that establish foundational claims about what the psalmist is wanting to communicate. Look again at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let's break down that claim for, for just a moment. He claims that God is a refuge. A refuge means a, a safe shelter, a place that one would go for protection a defense that opponents cannot conquer, a place one need not be concerned, a place of safety, of comfort, and of confidence. God is our refuge. He is our safe shelter. That is the starting point of this psalm, but he describes God not only as a refuge, he says God is our refuge and our strength. To say that God is our strength references God's ability to empower his people. It's an amazing statement. It's one that's easy to gloss over. God is our strength. He is our strength. The child of God has supernatural strength flowing through them. Now, supernatural strength brings many pop culture references to mind. The entire superhero universe has raked in billions of dollars, and it's built off of men and women who are given otherworldly strength. True, otherworldly strength does not manifest itself in the ability to fly or in feats of muscular strength. True, supernatural strength is strength that is from God. It is the God-given ability to act righteously in the face of trouble. 
In this psalm, that's what that strength means. It is the God-given ability to act righteously in the, in the face of trouble. God is our strength. He gives the ability to react rightly in the face of opposition. God gives his people the ability to do that. We are weak to obey on our own, but his strength is at work in us. He is our refuge. He is our strength. Keep reading in verse one. He is also a very present help in trouble. God helps his people. They are not alone. God's help is described. I love the way the psalmist puts this. God's help is a present help. A very present help. He does not just help from afar. Perhaps you have endured tragedy in your life. What do you expect from those who are closest to you in the midst of tragedy? You expect them to be there. You expect them to to help, you expect them to care enough to be involved, to shoulder the weight alongside of you. Well, when the psalmist speaks of coming trouble, he says God is a very present help. He's with us. Verse 1 makes the theological assertion that will carry us through this psalm. And the central purpose of this psalm, this is in your handout, the central purpose of the psalm is to proclaim God's powerful, protecting presence. He is powerful, he is the protector, and he is with us. He is a powerful and protecting presence. It's initiated in verse 1, but then it's repeated in verse 7 and in 11, which are both identical. So let's just look at verse 11 now, the last verse of this psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Again, God's presence is asserted in these statements. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of armies. It's a name for God that emphasizes his absolute power and might. The armies of heaven fall under him. They are under his command. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the powerful God. But what makes that truth so important is is not that he is an extremely powerful commander of armies. That is true. But it's more than just that. He is the Lord of hosts. But what brings this amazing truth home is not just that he's the Lord of hosts, but that the Lord of hosts is with us. His presence, again, is asserted. His powerful presence is asserted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The last line of the psalm says the God of Jacob is our stronghold. That is God's protecting presence, his powerful and protecting presence. In verse 1, he's our refuge. In verse 11, he's our stronghold, a defensive tower, a place where we need not worry. The bookends of this psalm bring it all together. The psalm centers on God's powerful, protecting presence, and you will hear me say that expression often in our time together this morning. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that God is a powerful and protecting presence? The psalmist is working off of a very important premise for the Christian life. This premise is critical. And that is that your theology directs your action. Your theology directs your action. Said another way, what you believe determines how you live. We all inherently know this to be true. It's not not even limited to matters of theology. If you believe that the world is ending tomorrow, you probably aren't saving for retirement today. If you believe that the economy is about to crash, you're not probably putting lots of money into stocks. What we believe directs how we act, and this is true in every category of life. But the psalmist is working off of that premise in this psalm. The assertion that God is a powerful and protecting presence means something practically in our lives. It's important that we connect these dots between head knowledge and application. It is important that we recognize that head knowledge of biblical truth is not isolated from life. In fact, it is essential for life. There are those who would state that head knowledge is unhelpful for the Christian life, that we want to be about application, not about learning. That is a false dichotomy. It's wrong thinking. 
Head knowledge leads to application. Now, you can certainly have head knowledge without applying it, but you cannot get to biblical application apart from accurate knowledge of biblical truth. What we believe determines how we act. The application of this psalm is also highlighted by the psalmist. After making these statements of God's powerful, protecting presence, look at verse 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, what is the natural outcome of those statements? We will not fear. We will not fear. Which is an impressive claim. This isn't some unique term with an unexpected meaning. When he says, we will not fear, he says, we won't be afraid. We won't be afraid. That may feel like an overstatement. Certainly there are things in life that can rightly be feared, one would think. But let's think again upon these claims because the psalmist is about to go to things that you would think are rightly feared in the next few verses. He's about to go into examples of things that you would think, ah, it makes sense to be afraid of that. He's going to give us a few scenarios, a few examples of things that actually, while seemingly they should be feared, if your theology is in the right place, he says, actually, even these need not be feared. The examples that he's going to give illustrate that God's powerful, protecting presence means that we don't need to fear in any circumstance. Any circumstance which I acknowledge may feel like an overstatement, but let's dive into the heart of this psalm. And as we do, we're going to see two scenarios in which God's powerful protecting presence comforts his people. Two scenarios in which God's powerful protecting presence comforts his people. And I want us to observe that in both of these, it is very natural to fear. It makes sense to fear. Every one of us of our own volition would fear in, the light, uh, in light of these circumstances. But the message of this psalm is that if, in fact, God is a powerful, protecting presence for his people, we need not fear. Two scenarios in which God's powerful, protecting presence comforts his people. Number one, natural disasters. Natural disasters. Here the psalmist begins to illustrate a scenario that would normally produce fear, but because of the powerful protecting presence of God, it does not produce fear. And that specific example is in the midst of natural disasters. Okay, now, in both of our points, we're going to see that he begins by giving an example of fear-inducing chaos. Okay, an example of fear-inducing chaos. Look at verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear... In the face of what? Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. He gives four descriptors of a natural disaster or perhaps several natural disasters. Though the earth should change, though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, and though the mountains quake. Now some have observed that when you take these four things together, it sounds like a catastrophic earthquake. That's certainly possible. It's not necessary to conclude that, but it's possible that that's what's in the psalmist's mind. These four come together regardless to express four terrifying events within nature. Four terrifying events within nature. First, the changing of the earth. That is literally the ground. Earth here means the ground beneath your feet. It starts to change. It starts to break apart to no longer be what it once was. This very much so would be indicative of an earthquake-type event where the very ground that makes up the earth is changing. His second descriptor is that the mountains fall into the ocean. <laughs> what a vivid picture. We don't need to fear even if the mountains begin falling into the sea. Of all parts of nature, mountains are considered the most secure and immovable objects. No one can move a mountain. The psalmist says, even if the mountains are disappearing into the sea, we have no need 
to fear. He continues, even if the waters rage, if they roar and foam, the roaring waters, the raging waters, no one on earth takes raging waters lightly. The most confident and capable sailors on earth seek to avoid the danger of storms. Tidal waves are the most destructive, one of the most destructive forces known to man. And in the Bible, the sea is often painted as a symbol of chaos. So when it roars and when it rages and foams, it is certainly a natural cause for fear. He gives a final statement. If the mountains begin to quake, again, he returns to the mountains if they're, if they're shaking if they're seemingly ready to burst. Now, everyone caught, anyone caught in the midst of these four events, I think we would all agree, has every right to be fearful. But remember where we started. We will not fear even if these events occur. Why? Because of God's powerful and protecting presence. In the face of natural disaster, the one who trusts God can rest assured. Even though the earth may be crumbling, God is with us. Even though there are terrifying events all around, he is strong. He is our strength and our refuge. Said another way, if the one who who made the mountains and the sea and the earth is with us and is powerful and is our ever-present help, then we need not fear the mountains or the sea or the earth. The psalmist continues with more statements of truth that help to motivate the commitment to not fear in the face of natural disaster. Now, there's a lot of debate. No one quite agrees on how to break up the the, the 46th Psalm. There's general agreement in what I've placed before you this morning that there are two main points in this Psalm. About how those two points are divided up is is pretty debated. Some say that the psalmist turns to his second point in verse 4, and there's certainly merit to that argument. But I don't think the psalmist is turning his attention fully to the national disasters that we'll get to in a minute quite yet. I believe that verses 4 and 5 kind of function as a pivot point between between, uh, the psalmist's two statements that he's making. He's certainly introducing the city of God in verse 4, which will influence his comments on national disasters. But he's referencing natural elements that I believe are supposed to anchor our thinking regarding his first point about natural disasters. He's not done talking about nature, but he's no longer talking about turbulent nature. He just said, if the mountains fall into the sea, if the waters roar and foam, if the mountains shake, if the earth moves... He's stated these natural disasters, and then we come to verse 4. There is a river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. He speaks of a river in the city of God that makes its inhabitants glad. He speaks of this place as the place where God dwells. In the face of natural disasters, the psalmist reminds his readers that there is a calm river that is to function as a key reminder. Now, let's get some context with what the psalmist is referencing here. The city of God, in verse 4, is Jerusalem. The river within the city of God, the waters that flow uh, are are most likely the the spring of Gihon. Now, a river is generally seen as a calming presence. Many of you have pictures in your homes with rivers or streams or brooks. These carry peaceful connotations. But a river is not only a calming presence, it is a water source that is central and essential for a city's existence. Kansas City owes its existence to the confluence of two rivers, the Missouri River and the Kansas River. 200 years ago, KC was founded as as a port at the point where the two rivers merged. If those rivers ceased to exist, the city itself would have been in jeopardy. The psalmist is pointing to a similar reality in Jerusalem. The spring of Gihon constantly supplied water to Jerusalem. It was critical to the existence of the city of God. 
Now, God's special relationship with the Israelites and specifically with the city of Jerusalem reassured them that while the earth around them may crumble, God has uniquely provided for them. He is with them. He protects them. Verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. Back in verse 2, the natural disasters were described as moving the earth. The earth may be moved. Here he says, the earth may move, but God's city will not. It's the same word. She will not be moved. The earth may, she won't, because she is God's city. The waters may rage. The mountains may crumble. The earth may give way. But the river in Jerusalem still flows. God continues to provide for his people. He will not abandon them. To rightly understand the encouraging nature of these verses, we need to seek to enter into the mind of the original audience. Jerusalem was the central city for the Israelites. This is Mount Zion. This is the city of God, the location of the temple, the location of David's throne, where the heavenly king will one day reign. God's presence with his people was not isolated to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was the climactic location of God's presence. So it's used in this psalm as as one manifestation, one example of God's powerful, protecting presence. Elsewhere, the psalmist will acknowledge there's nowhere we can flee from from the presence of God. The protection of God is not locationally based. It's relationally based. But nonetheless, with the Israelites' understanding of Jerusalem as their their central city, they say, even though everything else may crumble, God will provide for his people. Our river will still flow. There's no need to fear natural disasters because God is our refuge and our strength. Take, for example, his city. The earth may move, but God has a plan for his city. The mountains may fall into the sea, but God's city will not. Now, the specific statements of these verses are very cultural, cultural, but the principles behind them are universal. The message to embrace is that God is with us. He will not abandon us. He will give us what we need even in the face of natural disaster. So when tragedy strikes, for example, in the form of a hurricane or a tornado or storm or fire or flood or famine or sickness, natural disasters of any kind, we need not fear because God is with us. That's the first scenario. In the face of natural disasters, we need not fear. That brings us to a second scenario that the psalmist emphasizes, and it's it's listed in verses 4 through 9. It's on the back page of your handout, and that is national disasters. National disasters. Now, again, I'm intentionally overlapping verses 4 and 5. That's not an error on your handout because they carry both of the themes of the natural and the national. And so I think it functions as a bit of a pivot point between the two statements. Not only does the city of God illustrate security in the face of natural disasters, but also in the face of national disasters. Okay? Now, once again, he begins with an example of fear-inducing chaos. The psalmist has introduced God's city, which will not be moved, which God helps, which will surely bring to mind in the original audience the national threats to them as a people. Surely, as soon as the the thought of the city of God whose river is ever flowing would bring thoughts of those who may attack the city of God and the people within it. Now, we've already covered in verse 5 this city of God. The psalmist has said that God illustrates his providing presence with waters that make his people glad. He is with his people. He will protect her. But look at how that manifests itself nationally. Nationally in verse 6. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, and the earth melted. 
It's an amazing verse. The terminology that the psalmist uses there is that of warfare. Nations are fighting. They're raging. They're in an uproar. The same term that described the waters earlier, the waters that are raging and foaming, just like waves that are chaotically crashing together, the nations are colliding in a national tempest. The psalmist says that the kingdoms at war are tottering. They're falling down. The word he uses here is the same word that he used to describe the mountains in verse 1. He's he's using a lot of the same terminology here just to describe this this utter chaos, this natural chaos, this national chaos. The, The mountains are falling. The kingdoms are falling. The waves are colliding. The kingdoms are colliding. Chaotic destruction of cities. The term he uses here to describe kingdoms, it's, it's as if they're, they're, they're tottering. They're on the, the edge of falling over. Perhaps they even are falling over. Perhaps you've played Jenga in your home when the tower is swaying and it's barely holding on. That's how the nations are described here. These are national disasters. Nation attacking nation. People hating other people. Attacking, fighting, destroying. And Israel... Israel had its fair share of enemies. Israel certainly felt the threat of these nations raging against each other. Seemingly, Israel always had a threat posed to her. And so as the nations raged, it was natural for the Israelites to fear. At any given point, they they would have felt like they were on the brink of of being wiped out like countless other nations. Now again, certainly fear in the face of national destruction makes sense. I think we could all sympathize with the tendency to fear in the face of national destruction. But once again, One's theology corrects that response. Even in the face of warfare, the psalmist gives a potent reminder that God has all power. Look again at verse 6. The nations are raging. They're making an uproar. The kingdoms are tottering. He, God, raised his voice and the earth melted. When God raises his voice, the earth melts, the psalmist says. And an incredible example of just how powerful God is, the psalmist reminds us that while the nations may rage, they may go to war, but our God has a voice that can melt the earth. We serve a God with an earth-melting voice. Natural disasters may cause the earth to move. God's voice could cause it to melt away. The point is this. Raging nations are no threat to God's power. Raging nations are no threat to God's power. If he even raises his voice, they will no longer be threatened by each other. They will be threatened by him. It's a statement of God's absolute power. So the psalmist in these verses is beginning to remind Israel that the all-powerful God in the midst of national disaster, the all-powerful God is with them. Nations are often competing against one another to have superior weapons. Consider, for example, the nuclear arms race of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, pursuing the upper hand in nuclear warfare. The nation with the most military power has the most authority and less reason to be afraid. The psalmist reassures the Israelites, the terminology that he uses here is, is, is that like they have the greatest military power imaginable. God is on their side. There is one far more powerful than the raging nations. They may topple kingdoms, but a word from God will melt them. 
it will dissolve them. Now, the notion of an earth-melting God in the face of raging nations is not necessarily good news. The phrase by itself is just another terrifying threat. Unless you continue to verse 7. He raises his voice, the earth melted, and the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The earth-melting God, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, is not a threat to his people. He is with his people. So so that statement of this all-powerful God is, is meant to be a comfort. God's people can rejoice in light of his truth. They can take comfort in light of this truth. The God of all power is with us. He is on our side. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. In the face of national disasters, we need not fear because the one with all power is on our side. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist calls them to remember how God has demonstrated his power historically. So again, just like we saw before, there's this section under this second point that is a reminder of God's provision. And he calls them to remember in verses 8 and 9, what God has done. He says, look at what God has done before. Let's read it. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. The psalmist says, look at what God has done. He calls Israel to look at their history, look at their past. He has destroyed your enemies before. He is calling the Israelites to think back on how God has protected his people with his power historically. He's protected you from the Egyptians. He has driven out the Canaanites before you. He has delivered you from the Philistines. He has wiped out armies. He has made wars cease. He renders bows and spears and chariots worthless. You may fear those things. You may fear national disaster. You may fear war, but he renders those weapons worthless. He has protected his people. They are not at the mercy of their opponents. They are in the hands of the all-powerful God and their opponents who may be raging, who may be toppling kingdoms. They actually stand at the mercy of the all-powerful one. Nations rage. It's what they do. We may not feel this with the same type of threat that the Israelites do, but the reality of raging nations is not foreign to us. It is natural to fear the seemingly growing tension across the planet, to fear the potential for nuclear war, to fear the rise of evil powers, to worry about what the world is going to look like in the next 20 years, to be concerned over our political scene in the United States, to fear that the country you grew up with is not the country that is on the horizon. Every one of those may happen. Every one of those could happen. But according to this psalm, we need not fear. We need not fear. Because the all-powerful God is present with his people. Nations may rage. Kings may beat their chest. Kingdoms may fall, but God is strong and he's with us. He's with us. And if that's true, and it is, we have nothing to fear. The psalmist brings his argument to a climax in verses 10 and 11. This is the closing bracket of the psalm. In light of God's attributes that are declared in this psalm, his powerful and protecting presence, look at verse 10. Cease striving. 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The command that flows from these attributes of God is to cease striving. Now I'm reading from the New American Standard. The word striving in my translation is supplied. The original Hebrew simply says cease. Stop. Your translation may say be still. In the face of impending doom, in the face of horrific fears, in the face of disasters, stop. Stop fretting. Stop fearing. Stop scrambling. The command is not just to stop. The command is not just to be actionless. The command is to replace the scrambling fear that naturally comes from these circumstances, to replace that scrambling fear with a biblical response. And what is that biblical response? Stop and know that I am God. Know that I am God. The command is to know something, to think about something, to meditate on specific truth, to be assured of a certain truth. And that truth is that God is God. (laughs) If you fear earth's calamities, you're misinformed. You've forgotten something. And it is very natural for every one of us to forget this thing. But this psalm makes clear that if we are fearing earth's calamities, we are misinformed. As the antidote to a fearful response, God says, stop and think about this truth. Stop and meditate on who I am. Look, there, there are many attributes of God's there are many attributes of God, characteristics of God that would produce comfort in fearful scenarios. But here, the psalmist encourages us to think big. To think of the, the godness of God. Stop and know that I am God. I am not a man. I'm on the throne. I'm the ultimate authority. God says, rest assured in the fact that I hold all authority. I rule the earth. Rest assured that I am God. And because he's God, he can assure his people of the outcome of all of these disastrous situations. Look at the second half of verse 10. I will be exalted above the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He asserts, in the face of all of these disasters, I will be exalted. I will be glorified. These things, they don't undermine my plan. These things that cause you to fear, they don't stop me. They don't slow me down. I'm God, and I will be exalted. I will not be overcome. I will win. I will reign victorious over these disasters. He says he will be exalted above the nations, pointing to what he has just said about the national disasters. The nations are raging. They pose a threat to you. Yes, that may, from an earthly perspective, be true. You may Feel the results of that reality, but I will be exalted above the nations. He says, I will be exalted above the earth. The earth may pose a threat to you. There may be things that you feel that are painful as a result of disasters in the earth, but I will be exalted above the earth. The the spheres in which he will be exalted are in direct response to the threats that the Israelites are feeling. The outcome is secure. The outcome is secure. God will be exalted. To know the outcome and yet to fret 
is foolishness. To know the outcome and yet to fret at the way that we get there is foolishness. This week, I had our, our TV on and I came across a channel that was running a rerun of a football game. If you know me well, you know that I'm a, an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and there was a rerun of the Rose Bowl from this past January between Ohio State and Utah. I turned on the game, and midway through the third quarter, the, the star running back went down for Ohio State. Now, a little context, Ohio State wins this game in the final minutes. It was, it was a great game. I recommend that you watch it. The running back that went down comes back into the game, and he continues to make plans, to make plays, rather. I knew, I knew both of these facts. The game will be won. The player will be fine. But when he went down, my hands went to my head, and I said, oh, no. My wife, my wife is laughing at me as I fret over a game that has already be, been won. Now, before you judge me too hard, is this not what we do when we fear life circumstances? The outcome is secure. Stop and remember. I am God, and I will be exalted. The psalmist concludes with a repetition of the central claim of this psalm. The Lord of hosts, the all-powerful God, is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. He is our defense. He is our protector. He is our strength. He is our strong tower. Let's look at a few application points that flow through this psalm. Number one, in times of trouble, rehearse God's powerful and protecting presence. In times of trouble, we need to remind ourselves of these truths. We need to rehearse God's powerful, protecting presence. Theology directs practice. In times of trouble, our first priority is to make sure that we are thinking rightly. Because it is so easy for bad theology to creep in. Times of trouble appear frequently. We just looked recently in the past few years, and there are so many opportunities on a large scale for us to have bad theology in our response to troubles. COVID-19 is a time that may have produced wrong thinking for you. The war that is currently raging between Russia and Ukraine may produce bad thinking. The political landscape may produce bad thinking. But it's also far more nuanced than that. A bad day at work, a strain in a relationship, financial hardship, or any number of things. Bad theology easily creeps in. And the call of this psalm is to combat those times of trouble by stopping and remembering God is our refuge. God is our strength. He is very present. He is a very present help in trouble. He is the Lord of hosts. He is with us. He is the God of Jacob. He is our stronghold. Rehearse. Meditate. Know these truths of God's powerful and protecting presence. Now, let me give you just a word of warning on this first point of application. The message of this psalm is that God is powerful to protect his people. But just because God can protect us from earth's calamities does not mean that we will not experience them. I love the story in Daniel chapter 3 of the three young Jewish men who were about to be thrown into the furnace of fire by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
I want you to hear their response that I think accurately articulates this reality. As they are facing Nebuchadnezzar, who is commanding them to worship his image that he has created, or else they face death, here's what they say. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Those three young men so accurately articulate this reality. God can protect us from pain, but that does not mean that he always will. In Daniel 3, those three young Jewish boys were protected from the flame, from the pain of the fire. But it would be wrong to conclude because of that that there are no believers who have ever felt the pain of fire. There are tens of thousands of believers that have died at the flames. The reminder of this psalm is not that we will feel no pain, but that we need not fear because God is strong enough to protect us. Just because God is powerful and present does not mean that he always protects his people from everything that could be painful. God's people who sang this song will be taken into captivity, but they're never abandoned. They're never alone. If they are taken through the fire, it is because God is leading them through the fire. And if they find themselves in the midst of the fire, they can know that the God who is allowing that to happen, the God who is doing it is capable of melting the earth with his voice. He's the one with the power, and he is their strength to endure. So in times of trouble, remember God's powerful, protecting presence. He is strong enough. It is not a guarantee that you will feel no pain. It is a reminder that you can endure pain with confidence because he is with us and is strong. A second application. In times of trouble, recognize the nature of fear. Fear stems from poor thinking. Fear comes when we forget that God is powerful and that he's with us. Fear is uninformed. It's uninformed. Now, I, re- I, recognize, I recognize that fear within my heart is so natural. I think the Israelites sung this song as a song of aspiration. Not, not as a statement of their perfect obedience. We fear naturally at every turn. But we need to learn, and that's what this psalm is about. We need to learn to recognize that within ourselves and to correct our thinking. Here's the reality. If God truly is powerful and present to protect his people, then fear is irrational. God does not want his people to fear. The most common command in your Bible, the most common command in your Bible is do not fear. This is a psalm of comfort. It's a psalm of confidence. Believers are not to be people who fear the threats around them. Believers are a confident people because of their relationship with their God, even in the face of of adverse circumstances. A third application, in times of trouble, remember the big picture. Remember that God will be exalted. Remember that God will be exalted. Remember not only that God is with us in the moment, that was our first application, remember his powerful and uh, protecting presence. He is with us in the moment, but remember also at the end of this psalm, the ultimate outcome, that God says, I'm God and my purpose is not thwarted. When the world is crumbling, Remember verse 10, I am God and I will be exalted. When everything is breaking, God will be exalted. When 
things get scary, God will be exalted. When your life is threatened, God will be exalted. When disease dominates the planet, God will be exalted. When nations are running rampant in warfare, God will be exalted. And if the mountains fall into the sea, God will be exalted. Martin Luther is rightly called the leader of the Protestant Reformation. Luther's message and stance in opposition to the Catholic Church is well known. He wrote many works, delivered many powerful lines. He's often quoted for his sharp and witty language. He's known for communicating as directly and as bluntly as possible. Yet despite a wealth of incredible lines, there's one surprising work of his pen that is quoted more than every other word of Luther combined. And that is these words. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. That is the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Luther penned the words to this infamous hymn around 1520. And it quickly became the central song for the Protestant Reformation. In fact, it's become known as the battle hymn of the Reformation. For those who were persecuted during that time, this hymn was a source of strength. For martyrs, this hymn became a refrain of comfort and confidence. This hymn spread with the Reformation. It's been translated into hundreds of languages. And for 500 years, the church has continued to repeat after Luther and proclaim the words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, a defense that never fails. This hymn was Luther's rephrasing of a psalm that he held dear to his heart. Psalm 46. This was the psalm that Luther clung to in times of trouble. And the Reformation was certainly a time of trouble. The Reformation, the Reformation was a dangerous time for the Reformers. A heavy time for men like Luther. And when he was especially discouraged, he is known to have looked over to his co-worker, Philip Melanchthon, and say, come, Philip, let's sing together the 46th Psalm. Why was this Psalm so special to Luther? Because it reminds us that God is with us. That he is our strong defender. And that because that is true, we need not fear. That message is the message that we must cling to. God is with his people. And he is powerful to protect them. Father, help us to keep these truths in our minds, oh, there are so many causes for fear around each one of us. Each one of us has our own individual perceived threats to our comfort, perhaps to our safety. Father, help us to combat the nature of fear with the knowledge that you are God, that you are good, that you're powerful, you are our protector, and that you're with us. Father, we look forward to the day that you will be exalted over the nations and exalted over the earth. And as we look to that day, we seek to make your glory known now. Help us to do that even in our response to adverse circumstances. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.